Hey everybody, you guessed it, it's another episode of the greatest podcast in American history. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer. We also, this podcast is also known as Dang Dude, What the Heck is Wrong with America. Uh, we're looking at sort of the banking of modern America, how it came to be, why it looks the way it does, and sort of what is the deal with everything going on. Uh, so our first, our last episode was about sort of just an overview of the Industrial Revolution. Today we're diving in a little bit into looking at the Industrial Revolution in the North. So sort of the, what we would think of as the Union States, right? So your big industrial centers like New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, some of the greatest cities on earth. We're going to talk about three big things uh, in today's podcast. One, urbanization, right? So the switch from America being a rural country into America being an urban country. And we're talking about immigration, right? So the, at this point in time, the U.S. sees massive, massive, massive amounts of immigrants coming into the country, sort of growing the population by massive amounts. And then we'll also talk about some of the growing economic disparity coming out of the Industrial Revolution. As I talked about last week, the Industrial Revolution saw some people get really, really, really rich, and then a lot of people stay poor. Uh, I do want to say that I don't want to... I want to be careful here, right? There, the Industrial Revolution did help, did raise sort of the average uh, living rates of people in the United States, but there are many, many people living in sort of horrible, horrible, horrible conditions precisely because of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we're also going to, so some of the major questions that this podcast sort of looks at, doesn't really attempt to answer, but looks at at least is. One, how did the Industrial Revolution shape social relations in the North, right? So it's not just economic stuff that changes. It's not just um, political things that changes, but actual sort of the social relations between people, right? How people interacted with each other changed because of the Industrial Revolution. We're going to look at why did immigration rise, right? So why was now the time when, when we saw a lot of new immigrant populations coming into the U.S.? What was that experience like for those new immigrants, right? Uh, it wasn't the same, but there were some very, there's some commonalities across experiences. And then, so this bigger question, right? What is the American dream? Sort of that changes in this time and sort of what people think of what it means to be American. What can America offer you? Uh, before we get going into all that, though, one sort of like to do these little character studies at the beginning of each podcast. Today's guy for all my Chicago locals listening to this is Daniel Burnham, the big DB himself. Himself. He was he was a lot of things, but mostly what we know him for in Chicago is he was the head architect uh, for the 1893 World's Fair, also known as the White City. He also helped create the plan for Chicago, right? Basically, Burnham is one of the reasons why we don't have all this stuff littering the lake. The lakefront is basically is open to the public in Chicago. Uh, there's beaches, you know, they're free. You can just walk on whatever. If you look, if you've been, lived in places like Evanston, you know, you have to pay for the beaches in Chicago. They are free. That's largely due to Daniel Burnham. There's also no real development on the beaches. There's those two really ugly towers, which were sort of a big, big deal. The, the Wilco cover album looking, uh, towers, condo towers. But for the most part, the lakefront is not built up, right? It's public property. There's, there's parks. 
there. The Lakeshore Drive goes behind it, but there's, you know, lots of space in between. If you go to some other cities, that's not always the case, right? You have these oceanfront, lakefront uh, buildings everywhere, sort of ruining the views. But Chicago has all this public property because of Daniel Burnham. So he also, but that's not what he's known, mostly known for outside of Chicago, right? He's also known for the World's Fair, 1893 World's Fair. This was a big, big, big thing. They basically built this huge city in Chicago in just a matter of months. It was all sort of, it looks beautiful from the outside, right? If you Google some pictures of 1893 World's Fair, the White City, you see all these beautiful, old sort of Greco-Roman type looking buildings all in this white and these big, you know, they have these big statues. The fi- and they have the Ferris wheel is this huge, 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 huge thing, right? Where the museum campus is today. And the thing was with these buildings is they're actually like, they were not made to last, right? They're built pretty much with uh, plywood, but they did look beautiful at the time. But the World's Fair and Daniel Burnham, what they were trying to do was sort of show the promise of what the Industrial Revolution could be, right? All this beautiful stuff. The problem was, was that the Industrial Revolution didn't really always live up to that promise. Daniel Burnham sort of knew that, but tried to try to work around it, right? So our first thing here, let's get into it, is urbanization, right? So population increases. Most of these new industries that we were talking about last week on the podcast, uh, you know, this growth of the steel industry, the growth of the petroleum industry, the growth of the railroads, right? A lot of that happened in the North. Uh, and there's a reason for that prior to the Civil War. The North had been sort of the center of industry in the U.S. South was basically in the grasp of King Cotton, right? Slavery ran everything. They they had some industry, but they weren't building up industry. Uh, just all the money was in the awful, awful practice of slavery, uh, not in the North. So prior, so prior to the Civil War, as I mentioned, the North had been the center of industry, right? Chicago actually had provided most of the food uh, material and shipping for the Union soldiers. And that continued after the Civil War. So you get these northern cities are booming in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And by booming, I really mean booming, right? These cities are growing massively. Uh, one example, New York in 1860 had a population of about 1.1 million. And by 1900, just 40 years later, had a population of 3.4 million. That's a huge, huge, huge increase. Other cities are the same. 1860, Chicago had a population of only 109,000, but by 1900, had a population of 1.6 million. So a, a, a ten, like over tenfold increase, right? Just giant, 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 giant growth in these cities. You also get the same with the cities like Philly, Boston, Baltimore, Cincinnati, St. Louis. They all grow in these leaps and bounds. And it's not just the cities, right? It's not just these, you know, a couple cities growing. It's just the population in general is moving into the cities. In 1860, you can throw some more numbers at you. 25 million people in the U.S. live in what are in rural areas, right? So outside of these major cities. But by 1920, you finally see 54 million live in urban areas and 51 million live in rural areas. So you get that switch, right? No longer is the U.S. a rural-only population or a majority rural population. It's now a majority urban population. So just in a 60-year span, you get that switch, right? And it gets really close starting in the 1900s. Uh, that gap really, really starts to close between rural and urban. And so by 1900, more than a third of Americans lived in cities. As I mentioned, Chicago grew massively, massively grew. Uh, it was, you know, Chicago had long... Uh, sorry, America had long been this 
long been this agrarian nation, and now it was an urban one. So the big question is, and we still think about this question a lot today, it still matters to us a lot today, is where do all these people live? Well, the answer to that question, especially at this time that we're talking about, sort of this early, early 1900s, late 1800s, is tenements. These awful, awful sort of shanty towns, just really decrepit living situations. If you Google sort of the photos of Jacob Reese, you can see what these look like. They are just horrible places to live. Developers at the time sort of reacted to this influx of new people by building new buildings very cheaply. So you get a lot of new building at this time, but it's not sort of these stately mansions, these well-built places. It's a lot of sort of claptrap buildings uh, put up with no regard for safety or fresh air or all those sort of requirements of standard living. But they weren't just building new houses. They were also subdividing single-family homes into units for multiple families. So they're taking what had been sort of, you know, a home for maybe two parents and then a couple of kids and making that into, you know, three, four homes for the for quadruple the amount of people. So you get rid of backyards to do that. You build in backyards. You also just cut living spaces, right? So you have four, you can have in some cases, four people living in one room, right? One bedroom, sometimes even eight people just basically sleeping on top of each other. A lot of the rooms didn't have windows, no way to get outside. There was no building or safety codes. So people were just trying to pack as many people as they could into these buildings. Very, very dangerous, very unsanitary, and very, very common for people living in the cities. Sewage systems, very rare, largely ineffective, right? Uh, you don't have sort of what we think of as modern plumbing. You just go into the bathroom, flush it away. Don't think about it ever again. That was not the case. So... What do people do then, right? They don't want to live in these houses. They're not like us today, where we spend a lot of time indoors, you know, sort of sitting in our living rooms or whatever. They weren't, they weren't comfortable. They didn't have TV. There wasn't, it wasn't like a nice place to be. They usually smelled full of fleas, full of ticks, rats, all that sort of stuff. So what people did was they would go outside. And this actually sort of developed in some ways a lot of very vibrant communities within these tenement neighborhoods. People would talk with their neighbors, make friends, all the kids would be playing outside. But sort of at the what cost, right? You have these sort of very vibrant communities where people know each other. But because they're living in these horrible buildings that are fire hazards, uh, they go up all the time. There's Thousands and thousands of people die because of fires, especially in New York City and Chicago. Uh, these are not dangerous. Uh, these, sorry, these are not the safe places to live, but it was all many people could afford. All this new influx of people sort of created this shortage in housing, and this is the way developers responded. People were able to make some good out of it, but it was not a great situation. As we learned with the Industrial Revolution, though, not everyone was poor, right? Some people were very, very wealthy, made out very well from the Industrial Revolution, and they didn't live in tenements. They still lived in cities, though. They wanted the sort of growing opportunities within cities. We'll talk about some of the new entertainments that came up. And so a lot of them moved to places like New York, places like Chicago, Philly, and you get these incredible, incredible sort of mansions at the time. These industrials who 
grew rich. They didn't just sort of, you know, they wanted to enjoy the, the benefits of their wealth. And one of the places that you get uh, growing up is Fifth Avenue. was a huge, huge place for all these millionaires. One of, you know, Carnegie had houses. Astor had houses. And it wasn't just in the city. Vanderbilt sort of was known at the time for, we talked about Vanderbilt last week with the Vanderbilt Erie Railroad Canal War. He did lose that war, but he maintained his riches. He actually built a $11 million house, this huge, sprawling mansion. You can still visit it today. That actually would have cost $169.5 million in today's dollars to build, right? So even today, it's still this massive, massive, massive house. Almost no one spends, like not even Jeff Bezos, whatever, spends that much money on a house, right? So these massive, massive houses, you get this huge inequality. And where you coming with that inequality, right, is what this era becomes known as the Gilded Age. So this idea that there is this thin, thin layer of gold on top of everything, making it look shiny and new, but then beneath it is just this base cheap metal that really, really it hides, right, this gilded this gilding hides sort of the massive problems with the Industrial Revolution. This term, Gilded Age, came from uh, people like Mark Twain, Thomas Veblen, Edith Warden, all these writers and critics were sort of railing against the conspicuous consumption by these uh, these wealthy sort of titans of industry, some people called them. We'll also talk about in a couple of podcasts later how workers responded to this, right? So if you get the development of unions during this time, socialists, anarchists all come into greater power railing against this sort of gilded age uh, happening. So with the growth of the cities, right, you also get the beginning of the suburbs. We talked about last week the development of this new middle class, right, these new clerks, these new managers that are sprouting up during this time. And they couldn't afford the opulence of the Rockefellers, right? They couldn't spend $10, $11 million to build a house, a giant mansion on Fifth Avenue, but they also could afford to not live in tenements, right? They could afford to sort of leave these areas where there were rats everywhere and fleas and gnats. The problem is there weren't that many areas in cities a lot of times for them. So what they did was they developed suburbs. Uh, Once again, for all my Chicago locals, Evanston, is one of those suburbs, right? One of these early suburbs developed by people trying to get out of the city because they could afford to. They couldn't, you know, afford to buy on Fifth Avenue or build on Fifth Avenue, but they could afford not to live in the tenements. Sort of, and they would, you know, come back into the city, commuting, we call it today. But at the time, it wasn't done by cars, but by uh, you know, individual private cars generally, but by streetcars, elevated train systems, right? This is the development of the L in Chicago, comes from the suburbs. The L is actually sort of one of these sort of industrial age miracles, right? It's this crazy, crazy train system, very cheap. Everyone uh, can use it. It started out as being privately financed, a lot of the rail lines, and they would sort of just end, right? You know, the city would grow over time, and the, the L car development couldn't always keep up. So if you look at like the down line, it sort of just ends, right? There's, it is not really like obvious termination point for it. And that's sort of a relic of this time period. But things like the, the red line and the purple line, what they were known as today, developed during this time. Because of this urbanization and all these people in one area, you also get the development of new entertainments, one of the big reasons why people wanted to move into the city. So prior to the end of the Civil War, prior to this sort of industrial revolution period we're talking about, a lot of entertainment had been segregated by race, by class, and gender, right? So if you, there was, you know, entertainments for the rich, people with things like opera, 
And then there are entertainments for the poor. Thanks. Basically, like drinking, sort of, you know, beer halls, that kind of stuff. And then also the race, sort of whites only, uh, blacks only entertainments, and then gender as well. Entertainment was very gendered for, for most people. But now, sort of the Industrial Revolution and this growing middle class, these richer and richer people, and even sort of the poor, lower, uh, lowest class people had a little more spending money. They wanted to be able to spend that, right? They wanted to use some, some of the free time that they had to spend their, newly, their new money, right, from these new industries. And in response to that demand, new forms of entertainment sprung up. One of the first forms of that were amusement parks. You get these things like Coney Island, right? You get sort of roller coasters, not like what we think of roller coasters as today, but sort of very new, very fascinating for people at the time. And the interesting thing about these entertainments is that they were available to men and women, to rich middle and working class, all attended places like Coney Island. That doesn't mean that they were fully sort of integrated, right? They were still very much segregated by race, and they were still within the park segregations between, you know, what working class people do, what rich people could do, what, what men and women could do, but they were sort of all in the same place, which is this new big development. You also get the development of hot dogs uh, with Coney Island. I read something somewhere, and this isn't, I, I'm not quite sure if this is true or not, but the first guy selling hot dogs uh, had all the people selling them dress up in doctor shirts, you know, sort of like the, the white doctor lab coats to try to convince people that they were actually good for you, right, in some sort of way. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a fun story nonetheless. Along with Coney Island, you get new forms of entertainment like baseball. It's the historian's curse to to love baseball. You know, sort of the joke is that all of these older white historians love baseball. I'm, I'm maybe not an older historian, but I certainly do love baseball. And baseball sort of comes into its own during this time. You get people like Cy Young, like Babe Ruth, all becoming these local heroes in places like New York, Boston. Boston, Chicago, they all get their baseball teams during this time. They The sports pages sort of grow up out of this, and baseball is all over the sports pages. Maybe some boxing, but mostly it's baseball at the time. They fill up these stadiums. People get into the games for cheap. Peanuts, they, they drink beer, write all these songs. People have a great time. And when the radio gets developed, it starts spreading into more and more houses with the spread of electricity. People start listening to baseball games on the radio as well. So that's sort of some of the stuff that urbanization brings, right? You get some some social changes, less and uh, less class segregation, gender segregation, though still there is a lot of that, but that's sort of slowly changing. The other big topic, uh, one of our other, the second of our three big topics today, immigration, right? The North saw a massive amounts of immigration of immigrants arrived during this period. That's basically the big reason why the number of cities, population of cities, grew so massively during this time. There's definitely people coming from rural areas to urban areas, but it's also this huge influx of immigrants. Just some more numbers for you. Between 1880 and 1920, about 25 million people came to the U.S., moving here sort of full time. Largely, they came from Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe. So you get places like Poland, Germany, Italy, all these new places. Prior to this, uh, immigration to the U.S. had mostly been northern and western Europe, so places like the U.K., places like Scotland, 
uh, some Irish, but now that's sort of switching and moving over. There's lots of reasons for this, you know, sort of starvation going on in Europe at this time. There's some financial crises, crises. There's some wars going on, sort of just pushes that were that are bringing people to the U.S. And we're going to talk about a couple of reasons for why people move to the U.S. There's going to be four sort of main ones. One is European population growth. Two, urban crowding in Europe. Three, anti-Semitism and for economic opportunities, right? So Europe is going through a pretty big population growth at this time, and they're running out of space, really. It's harder to feed people. There's famines going on. People need to get out. Along with that, right, you also see the growth of cities in Europe during this time. They're also having their own sort of industrial revolution. But those cities have been established for so long, they don't really have much place to grow, right? They can't grow out of what they're doing already, so people are coming to the U.S. Third, there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on, especially in Russia and Poland at this time. You see a huge influx of Jewish immigrants to the United States from Russia and Poland during this time. At one point, they're about sort of... they made up like a third of the population of New York. These uh, Jewish people in general, but most of them Russian and Polish. And also economic opportunities, right? Sort of the growth of these big industries, people saw an opportunity to make something for themselves to make a little money. So what was life like for these immigrants in the United States? Many of them faced very hard lives. Children had to work. People had to work sort of these long, long hours for low wages. If you read anything like The Jungle, right, you know, it's about this Lithuanian immigrant. He lived a very, very hard life. It wasn't really the thing that he dreamed it would be. Anti-immigrant sentiment was rampant at this time with these growing immigrants, right? They were considered to be from the quote-unquote the bad parts of Europe. So they were looked down upon. Uh, people took advantage of them. Were, employers took advantage of them. Just general shopkeepers took advantage of them. A lot of immigrants were forced into low-paying, very dangerous jobs. Most immigrants stayed in urban areas. You do get some becoming farmers or moving into rural areas, but the large, large majority stayed in these urban areas. Despite that, though, people still came, right? There was this sort of idea that they could make a better life for themselves. People would follow relatives who came over and were able to make something. And they were just sometimes the pushes out of Europe were much stronger than sort of the pushes out of the United States. So people did come and were successful here, but many of them faced very, very hard lives. So assimilation, right? We talk about this a lot. People talk about this a lot today. At the time, that was sort of what success was like, right? Looking at sort of these new changing social relationships because of all this immigrant population, one of the big things was this idea of assimilation. Should you sort of become American, quote unquote, or should you uh, keep to your own culture? And at this time, success for immigrants was very much tied to abandoning that culture and sort of, quote unquote, becoming American, right? Of course, what it meant to be American sort of changed depending on who you're talking to, right? Carnegie's idea of what an American looked like was very different than, say, sort of this working class person working in a factory somewhere, right? So many people did try to assimilate, learn English, but along with that, you also get these big ethnic communities springing up all throughout America, all throughout American cities, which helped give immigrants a chance to sort of maintain some of those, some of those connections to their cultures. 
You can see this all over with Chinatowns developing, but then also places like Little Italy in Chicago. You get Andersonville, which was a big Swedish neighborhood, Logan Square, which was a big Polish neighborhood. And there's still a lot of remnants of that today, right? You can still, in Logan Square, go to, you know, get a Polish newspaper, all sorts of stuff. And you get all, all types of cities, right? New York has this. The Lower East Side was a heavily Jewish area in New York City. And you had all these different types of uh, small communities where people could still speak their languages and practice, you know, religious cultural practices on their own. So you also get some, uh, moving off from immigration, you get growing economic disparity. That's sort of one of the big, our last of our big three topics today and a really important point about the Industrial Revolution. So some more facts, and I know I'm going to sound a little bit like Bernie Sanders here, but I think that's important. So in 1890, the top 1% owned as much property as the other 99% of the country. Like I said, I'll sound a little bit like Bernie Sanders, but I think it's really a relevant point, right? You, As I mentioned before, some people get really, really, really wealthy. Your Jay Goulds, your Vanderbilts, your Carnegies, they are incredibly rich, like almost unimaginably rich. They just couldn't spend how much money they have. And they, that top 1%, owns as much as the other 99%. And that's just property, right? So if you look at wealth, you get the top 1% controlling the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50%. So not quite as sort of obvious a split as that 99 to 50%, but still a massive, massive amount, right? That top 1% is not a lot of people. So you have this massive wealth and massive economic disparity, basically because the reason that these people were getting so rich is because they weren't paying their workers. You know, they were taking them for all they were worth, paying them as little as they possibly could. And in a couple of podcasts later, we're going to talk about how the workers responded to this. But now I sort of want to talk about how this wealth gap was justified, how it came to be, right? Because these rich people knew how rich they were. And so they sort of made up reasons for why that was okay. There's basically two categories of reasons, of justifications for this massive economic disparity. The first are sort of cultural justifications, and the second are religious justifications. We'll look at those cultural ones first. So during this time, you get the develop this the development of this idea of social Darwinism, quote unquote, you know, survival of the fittest, but take it outside of the, the biological, natural world context and put into sort of the human world. And this idea that if you weren't rich, that meant you hadn't evolved enough to be rich, right? That you weren't meant to be rich. It's incredibly racist, right? Because sort of basically if you were white, that meant that you could potentially become rich. And it's also sort of you can see, find the seeds, the roots of eugenics, the later eugenics movement in here, right? Sort of this idea that we should do population control to get rid of the people who would never be rich, the non-fittest. Wildly, wildly messed up. You also have this idea of the myth of success, right? Where if you worked hard enough, you could become rich. You get these books written by this guy, Horatio Alger, called the Ragged Dick Books, which are, you know, about this little boot black who was, you know, homeless, working on the street, basically. And then through gumption and guts and hard work and just a little, little bit of luck, he makes himself into a clerk, you know, this middle class guy, right? So this idea that it's sort of your fault if you're poor, right? You just need to work a little harder. You just need to, you know, put your pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That idea sort of comes into this time. So you have people like Carnegie 
in his Gospel of Wealth book, saying, well, you know, I'm rich because I worked hard, and you could also be just as rich as me if you just tried a little harder. So those are sort of the cultural justifications. There's also some religious justifications. At this time, the U.S. is still heavily, heavily Protestant. The influx of the Central and Southern Europeans will bring more Catholicism into the U.S., but at least the, the leading elite at the time are very much sort of these mainline Protestants. And along with that, they have this sort of sense of morality about money where they sort of claim that poverty is not a societal problem, right? Economic success is only about an individual's actions. It's only what you do or don't do that makes you rich. There's not sort of social problems that create this poverty. And so the wealthy people like Carnegie and others argue that their actions actually improve society, making them a moral good, right? You, Carnegie starts building these libraries, you know, he'll donate some funds, build up an opera house here or there and say, look, I'm using my wealth and it's actually good that I have all this wealth so that I can help people. The, the counter argument to that would be like, well, you're actually only wealthy because because you're stealing from sort of workers who should get this money anyway. They don't need you to tell them how to live. So those are some justifications, right? So let's look at sort of more of the reasons of what happened with this uh, economic disparity and how it came to be, right? There's sort of a lots of evidence, tons of evidence that these tycoons became rich through corruption, through graft, through sort of backdoor political manipulation, through taking money from their workers, right? We talked last week about the Erie Railroad War, where they were just literally bribing officials on the floor of the Senate to, you know, vote their way, right? Only some people can do that. So some more corruption, right? Just bribing, once again, is this big, big tool that they're using, literally just taking sort of sacks of money and giving it to people. Another example of this is the credit mobilier scandal. This is, once again, has to do with railroads. Lots of railroad scandals going on during this time. So how this worked, the credit mobilier scandal, was that the owners of the Union Pacific Railroad created a fake company that they used to essentially pay themselves via contracts, right? So they were hiring out, they created this fake company, used the railroad to hire that company to then pay themselves through that company, right? So just straight up graft. And then to get people to let, you know, stop investigations from happening, they handed out stock in this fake company to representatives on the floor of the house. This is the U.S. House, right? So just massive, massive amounts of corruption and disparity going on. The Union Pacific Railroad got government contracts. Um, they use that money just to pay themselves and bribing representatives with it. You also get this sort of political corruption that goes on with it, and it, people use it at the time to make money for themselves. The most famous one is the Tweed Ring, uh, run by Boss Tweed, William M. Tweed. They controlled large numbers of immigrant and urban votes, and then Tweed and his you know lieutenants would use that influence of those votes to get awarded building contracts. And these building contracts were also heavily inflated. Sometimes they, you know, they wouldn't build the building at cost. They wouldn't build it well. They would also sometimes just even not build it right or take years to build these contracts just using the money for their own gain. What we know, this is what we know now as sort of the political machine, right? Uh, we, this is the start of the, the Chicago machine, very much sort of based on this sort of tweed ring at the time. So one thing it is important to note that tweed did was he would like, the reason people voted for him in the first place is that he would give out sort of, you know, small favors to the community. He'd buy some Christmas hams, pass them out to the community. You know, if your your brother moved over and you worked for Tweed, he'd, he'd get your brother a job, right? All this sort of stuff. So 
they get they do some like you know help ease the transition into the city for some people but at the cost of this massive political corruption and they really did hurt the city in the long run right they they made huge huge piles of money off of this and the services that they provided while were sort of did help did like you know save some people's lives in general it hurt a lot of people as well and so you know it helped ease that transition to life in America for a lot of new immigrants but did deepen that economic disparity in a lot of ways so that's basically the end of today's podcast just some conclusions here real quick to go through one the north as we talked about became a heavily urbanized place right you had these vast numbers of immigrants coming into the city moving into the united states and most of them stayed in the city you also get this sort of Along with that, this massive economic disparity, creating vast differences in quality of life, right? You get huge, huge differences between the people living on Fifth Avenue and then people living in tenements down the street. You also get the, this new middle class in the North, which is using their spare time and money to create new entertainments for themselves, to go to Coney Island, watch baseball games, then also ride new things like the L. Uh, So there's a couple, uh, I didn't recommend that many books on last week's podcast, but I just want to talk about uh, some here if you're interested more in this kind of stuff. Jonathan Levy's Freaks of Fortune, The Emerging World of Capitalism and Risk in America is really interesting. Also get, uh, I would say, Daniel Ernst, Tocqueville's Nightmare. And then Barbara Young, uh, Welke's Recasting American Liberty, Gender, Race, Law, and the Railroad Revolution are pretty good books about this sort of progressive era, Gilded Age era in the United States. So that's the Industrial Revolution in the North. Next week, we'll be talking about the Industrial Revolution in the South, right, moving down into what used to be the Confederate States and is now back in the United States. We'll see how they dealt with this new industrial world after the end of slavery. Uh, So have a great week. Remember, only the first four episodes of this are free. Subscribe on Dang Dude What the Heck uh, to get future episodes. And have a great rest of your day.